I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to this week's episode of Good Faith Weekly. And this week, Autumn and I are going to do a little catch up, talk about why the president may or may not delay the presidential election in November, and then also talk about a book that I just finished, White Fragility. Later on in the podcast, we're going to interview a very, very interesting individual, Dr. Amber Schmidtke, who is a professor at the medical school at Mercer University in Georgia, also used to work at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. So you'll not want to miss that interview. Are you worried that COVID-19 is going to put off your plans for theological education? The Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is offering a full schedule online this fall. Our approach to online education is unique, offering classes live and face-to-face via Zoom. At BSK, relationship is critical, and we are thrilled to be able to offer our Master of Divinity, Pastoral Care Certificate, and Rural Ministry Certificate this way. Learn more at bsk.edu. Autumn, how are things in your neck of the woods? Things in my neck of the woods are actually going pretty well. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, now you can go. I was just, I, I, I didn't want to jinx this moment because, you know, right? things are going well. I'm just going to hold on. Yeah. So, hang on, let me check Trump's tweets. Okay, we're good. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Um, we have slowly put our children back into their childcare facilities um, wow. with masks and they're safe. And my house, like on the first day that we took them back to where they belong, our house just went, <sighs> <laughs> The entire house. And I just and took a deep breath. The whole house was like, <laughs> you people have been cooped up inside of me for the past four months and I need a break. Like the walls, <laughs> you could just feel this frenetic energy just drain away. And in the mama too. <laughs> Oh, well, are they enjoying their return to school? They are so happy. Yeah, our oldest started back to volleyball. So she's getting some, you know, some socialization, which at 13 really needs to go beyond your your family. Oh, sure. um, she was just really done with us. And then our next oldest son is doing a creativity camp. They're all masked up. He's actually painting with a member of our church right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our youngest two are at a little farm school. So they're picking tomatoes and taking care of goats and outside and filthy when they come home. And it just, it's that little return to normalcy that I think we just really needed. And it, it's a calculated risk that we had to make for our family. And you'll right. hear that later in our conversation with Dr. Schmidtke, but it feels very good. Good. Well, it sounds delightful. I'm glad everything is is going well, and uh, I'm glad to hear you know you mentioned the kids uh, wearing masks at school, and uh, you know you and I have talked off uh, recording before, and it seems like that's going well. Kids aren't having a problem with it. Just talk to teachers. In fact, my oldest or my youngest son is uh, a camp counselor at your son's school, and he said that. Uh, you know, every now and again, you got to remind them to pull up their mask. But overall, they're doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really not that big of a deal. Yeah. It's, your mask. it's really hard to believe that, you know, some adults have a difficult time doing that. But, you know, that's another topic. How are you all doing? <laughs> We're doing well. Now, I do have to say I'm a little bit nervous because uh, two weeks from now, uh, I'm going to be getting on an airplane for the first time since March. My youngest son... 
and I have to travel up to New Hampshire. When he was brought home, uh, when the pandemic broke, uh, he left all of his belongings in his dorm room at Dartmouth University or Dartmouth College. And that's where they've been. Uh, They weren't letting anybody back on campus to retrieve uh, those possessions. So we got a notification a couple of weeks ago that it was time for us to come and pick all of his stuff up. They had actually packed up the dorm room and put it into a bin. So we're going to be going to some large room where this bin resides and picking up all his stuff because he needs clothes for this next uh, semester. Okay. Because he's not going back. I need to preface that. He's not going oh, back oh, in the fall. Uh, and so he, he needs a lot of those items uh, to do online school this particular semester. He'll be going back on campus, hopefully in the winter. So, yeah. so I'm going to get on a plane. So I'm a little bit nervous about it. I haven't flown since uh, March. So I'm just picturing, you know, that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they put the Ark of the Covenant after all is said and done. It's just like boxes and boxes and they <laughs> zoom out and it's just boxes and boxes. That's, right. yeah, That's and, what I'm picturing. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a little bit nervous, not only for the plane trip up to New Hampshire, but when we begin to dive into that bin, I mean, this is an 18, 19 year old freshman in college, I don't want to know what's in that bin. I don't know what's living in that bin. I don't know what (laughs) organisms. I may want to take my chances with the virus, to be quite frank with you. Sure. At least I'm working on a vaccine for that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, Well, speaking of uh, the virus, our wonderful, illustrious president tweeted out just this morning that he thinks that it might be a good idea to delay the November election. What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Can I quote you on that? (laughs) Yeah. You know, first of all, I think he can think that all he wants, but it's not really his position. I don't think he can legally do that. Can he? No, certainly unconstitutional. The only uh, body that can set the date for the election is the United States Congress. So that is not part of the executive branch, but of the legislative branch. So he's talking nonsense. He's floating the idea out there. He's hoping that uh, it will rally his base and blah, blah, blah. It seems like all he, you know, he's been doing lately, including retweeting a, uh, a few doctors that were in Washington, D.C. this week, um, touting his now debunked uh, uh, treatment for COVID-19, uh, the malaria drug. Um, I can never pronounce this, Autumn. Help me with the pronunciation. Hydroxychlorine, Yep, that's it. That's exactly it. Okay. And, uh, and then it came to note that uh, one of these doctors in particular had some interesting ideas about uh, just health in general, which, you know. <laughs> I'm just going to say really quick that 2020 can take a lot of things away from me, but it cannot take away my sex with demons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I my god! You know what? It, my body, my choice. <laughs> I know. I mean, I saw that. It was like. Huh? <laughs> well, it has been a strange, strange week. No doubt about that. Um, you know, I feel like we say that every week. Yeah, it does. You know, like you've said this before, and and probably will say it five more times before 
November and January rolls around, hopefully we'll have a regime change in, uh, uh, or administrative change, I should say, not regime that, uh, you know, harkens know. to third world dictatorships. But um, hopefully we'll have a change just because uh, these last four years, I don't know if we could, as a democracy, withstand another four years of this lunacy. But at the same time, there are a lot of serious things going on. Uh, again, the uh, virus seems to continue to escalate. It does seem to have plateaued. Unfortunately, it has plateaued, plateaued at a very alarming rate uh, with numbers continuing to uh, stay steady, but they're at a very, very high rate uh, and desk, uh, are escalating as well around the country. So we need to continue to advocate for social distancing, mask wearing, take every precaution you can, hand washing. We're going to be talking to Dr. Schmitke about that here in just a moment. I want to shift gears a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about a book that I just finished reading that was just one of the best books I have encountered in a long time called White Fragility. A lot of my colleagues and friends have been reading this book. It is written by Robin D'Angelo. Uh, it is an excellent, excellent book that addresses white fragility, but also white uh, privilege, white supremacy, uh, the, the, the way systemic racism has uh, been a, an advantage to white people. But as I listened to the conclusion of the book, and, and the, the first of the book is excellent, the second part of the book is just remarkable. So don't skip the first part, but the second part is just outstanding. Really dives into this white subconscious that resist admitting to racism or systemic racism, that because this is so ingrained into the white psyche that many white people have a very difficult time understanding and coming to grips with not only racism, but with their white fragility and the dominance of race the dominance that race plays in our society. And what D'Angelo does in the book that is extremely fascinating is she really calls out white progressives and in their inability to see systemic racism and ingrained racism within their own person. And she gives example mm -hmm. after example of that, of especially white progressives trying to play the white savior mentality for African-Americans mm -hmm. in this country and how they do a lot of white explaining after a, a, an African-American individual has shared their thoughts on the matter. And it's, I mean, it, it, it's really a, a wonderful, wonderful book. I, I recommend it immensely to uh, our listeners, uh, to our readers at Good Faith Media, um, it's just it's just really really well done. But this this idea, Autumn, of a white subconscious, I've I've never really thought about that. Um, that it is so ingrained into our culture, so ingrained to our persona uh, and into our ego as an individual that. It affects every part of our life, even when we're trying to advocate for mm -hmm. being more inclusive and being a more diverse uh, community, how that has really continues to even shape that 
that conversation. Mm-hmm. So I haven't read the book yet, but sorry, um, I, I know this is tricky because you don't want to be the white person asking the black person, how do I fix this? But does the mm-hmm. author give any guidance on how to sort of either sit with that, you know, I'm a racist and, and move through it or, or how to truly be an advocate? Yeah, she does an excellent job of that, actually, just giving really tangible examples of how we can continue to educate ourselves and to be a lifelong learner in Mm -hmm. understanding white fragility, to understand systemic racism and over racism, which is a little easier to understand, but especially the the latter or the former two, that, um, that we need to listen. We need to understand that the conversations that we have are important and that we need to be willing to be criticized for our whiteness, to be criticized mm-hmm. for our attitudes and our actions. And she, she talks about a few conversations that she has because this, uh, I mean, she speaks from a, a white perspective. And she talks about some of the conversations that she had about when she was perpetuating um, white fragility, white privilege into the conversations that that she was having and how those conversations helped her understand herself better and better herself to be a not only a better advocate, but a better human being in relationship to other people uh, who look uh, and come from different cultures. And, you know, for one example, she talked about a conversation of, or a suggestion of being, uh, stop trying to suppress your criticism of racism when you see it and hear it. Because it is a it is a point of privilege to say, oh, I need to pull that person aside, and and talk to them about this in private, because mm-hmm. the moment didn't happen in private. Yeah, and so you know, it, 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 and because if you call somebody out for uh, their ingrained racism or their white fragility in public, then they automatically start to criticize you for calling them a racist. And you're saying, uh, you know, that the argument is I'm not calling you a racist, but what you did is, is white is racism or white fragility or or white privilege. Mm -hmm. And let's have a conversation about that in public because it happened in public, but because of white fragility, if you say that in public, it's like, Oh, you're attacking me. You should have Mm -hmm. said that in private. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, so yeah, and it's, you know, and there, there are, are moments like that in the book and examples like that in the book that I think are, are very, very telling. One story that was just heartbreaking was there's a section there called uh, the white women's tear or white women tears. <laughs> and she talks about the history of that. And this was absolutely fascinating because, you know, years back, especially during Jim Crow, Um, white women's tears brought about the death of so many black men. Emmett Till is the perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. The 1921 race massacre in Tulsa, another perfect example of that. That this notion of white women being the virtuous 
human being and the black male somehow being the averse to that plays into our psyche. So anytime a white female begins to cry in a racially diverse setting, all of the comfort and care is projected to the white woman, while Mm -hmm. the black individual, in many cases a black male, will be abandoned and, for history tells us, retribution will follow for the black male. And she gives a perfect example about that happening in a classroom where she called out a white female who was attempting to white explain what a black male had just said. And she says, well, that's an example of your white privilege and the ingrained racism that you have. And this was a, a progressive white woman sitting in this classroom and she began to cry. Well, then all of a sudden, Every, you know, her friends around her descended on her to pat her on the back, and the ear was, uh, uh, was the criticism was leveled against the teacher, and she said the picture was was astounding because you had everybody their attention on the white male who was crying or white female who was crying, and the black male who was on the other side of the classroom was sat there by himself. You know, and so it was. I mean, there's example after example of that in the book. But uh, again, I just highly, highly recommend it. It is, is it is really, really good. So. That's amazing. Something that you said earlier made me think about the racial justice town hall session that we had on Tuesday. Which, if you haven't seen those, they're available on our uh, Good Faith Media Facebook page and on our website. Um, Dr. Bridgeforth had so many one-liners. In oh fact, my gosh, that I think yeah. could she was fantastic. A Twitter account just based on her. But one thing that she said was um, dehumanizing dehumanizes. So, you know, when you're sitting with your white fragility, it is an element of dehumanizing the Mm -hmm. other. And not only should you think about that because of the way that it's impacting people of color, but it's also dehumanizing you. And we all need to do better when we know better. And sometimes in order to know better, you have to pass through some time that's uncomfortable and you have to sit with that and wrestle with it. And anyway, I just thought that was, it, it just made me think about Dr. Bridgeforth's line. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And that is reiterated time and time again in white fragility that, you know, the point of white privilege is that we always want to be comfortable. We want to be safe. We want to, we want to feel like, you know, we're not being attacked um, but the reality is maybe we need to be attacked. We need to be uncomfortable. And I think a lot of times the individuals who are struggling with this, who have questions about this, who give us the most pushback when we talk about the importance of, uh, of diversity and inclusion, but also the evils of white privilege and white supremacy in this world and systemic racism – the ones who push us push back on that the most, I think, are the ones that are really internally struggling because they're doing so from a position of safety, of privilege, of power. They do not want to feel uncomfortable, um, but they need to. They absolutely need to. Uh, and if the one thing that we learned from the scriptures and especially the gospels is Jesus was a master of making everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> He would tell stories. He would ask questions, and everybody would go, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not doing that," or "Yeah, you know right. that that uh, that convicts me." 
And we need to be convicted, especially uh, the the white dominant culture in America. Uh, we yeah. need to be made feel. We need to be made to feel uncomfortable, and implement societal transformation. Well, speaking of societal transformation, you're going to want to stay tuned and listen to this interview. Autumn and I had the privilege of visiting with Dr. Amber Schmidtke earlier this week, uh, who is a medical professor at, at Mercer University out in Macon, Georgia, as also she's a former employee of the Centers for Disease Control. Lots of great information that you want to stay tuned for. Ethics Daily and Nurturing Faith are coming together and joining forces to launch Good Faith Media. Is that not exciting? I am pumped. I'm so excited. We've been planning this and scheming and dreaming, and it's finally coming to fruition. Well, we're really excited to roll out the new website, uh, hoping that everybody will get a chance to log on to goodfaithmedia.org uh, starting July the 1st. But uh, there's also something we want to invite uh, a lot of our good friends to be a part of, and that is the Good Faith 50. So, Autumn, tell us a little bit about the Good Faith 50. The Good Faith 50 is a group of our friends who want to support us. And our goal is to grow our monthly members, so our, our folks who donate to the mission of Good Faith Media, which is to provide resources and reflection at the intersection of faith and culture through an inclusive Christian lens. We want to invite the people who believe in that mission to become monthly donors. And our goal in July and August is to grow our monthly donors by 50. That is absolutely awesome. We welcome anybody who wants to be a part of the Good Faith crew in the months of July and August. And all they need to do is go to goodfaithmedia.org, hit the donate button, and then select to become part of the Good Faith 50 and a monthly donor at any level. And we would love to hear from you. And we appreciate, as always, your support. Your contribution helps us publish new articles each and every day. It also helps us uh, produce short documentaries and allows us to cover stories across the country. It helps us publish more books and provide more experiences for more people of faith. We are trying to advance a faith that is inclusive for all, providing justice for all and freedom for all. So make certain you sign up on Good Faith 50 at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and this week's guest is Dr. Amber Schmidtke. Welcome to the pod, Dr. Schmidtke. Dr. Schmidtke teaches microbiology at Mercer University School of Medicine. In addition to her teaching duties, she currently volunteers on the Georgia COVID-19 Data State Task Force. She's also worked previously at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and we are absolutely thrilled and excited to have somebody of your stature on the pod today. So Dr. Schmidtke, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're so thankful. Now, I have to tell you, first of all, that I have a lot of friends on Facebook that probably have more medical knowledge than you do. <laughs> um, yeah. They did of course, go yeah. to high yeah. school mm -hmm. um, and they do sell detox tea to supplement <laughs> their income. So I'm going to be basing all of my scientific knowledge on their posts. Uh, awesome. Uh, true. Yeah, the true experts of the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Obviously, we are kidding. We are so thankful to have some, you know, some additional light shed on this. And so we're excited about our conversation. 
Definitely. We all are trying to learn science as we go here. So this Absolutely. is a great opportunity. Good. Yeah. I saw someone mention that, that you know, for some folks, this is the first time they've seen science in action, that there's a lot of trial and error. These things that we all rely on, like the flu shot, like polio vaccines, had had a life that looks a lot like COVID-19. Many of us just weren't around when that was happening. Right. I mean, a lot of science and the scientific method is something that happens without a lot of public scrutiny. There are a lot of opportunities for correction and, you know, peer review and double checking each other that normally doesn't have this public spotlight shine shining on it. And so um, in, in some ways, I think it, some people think that this means that science doesn't agree. And so therefore we don't need to do what science is saying. But honestly, this is one of the most beautiful parts of science, in my opinion, is the collaborative nature of it and the self-correcting nature of it. I think that if um, a lot of us in other industries could take on that humility and recognition that we don't necessarily know all the answers and be willing to change our mind in the face of evidence, then I think that would help us in a lot of areas. Now, Dr. Schmitke, um, you know, cases in Georgia are on the rise, almost 3,000 new cases uh, as of today. I noticed uh, in the recent reporting, 11 deaths uh, were reported today. We just really want to begin by asking before we get into all the technicalities of uh, addressing this pandemic and the safety measures that we can take. We've been asking all of our guests, how are you? How is your family? How, what are you doing as a mom, as a, you know, a parent um, to take care of yourself and take care of your family? Wow, what a great question. And honestly, not one that I get asked all that much. You'd be surprised. Um, I think that, you know, it's been a struggle. I think my kids are probably getting more screen time than they ever should. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, I've been having to work from home. I've been having to be a mom at the same time. And I know a lot of parents are going through that too. Um, You know, we do try to make sure that we're getting exercise every day and we see the sun for a good while, even though it's hot in Georgia and unpleasant. Uh, We're going camping this week. Um, We're going to socially distance and hopefully not see another soul. Um, (laughs) But it will be a great opportunity to get out of this house and to, you know, reconnect with nature and stuff like that. So thank you for asking. You bet. Now, if you go out in the woods and you see all the deer and the raccoons and the possums wearing masks, you know, they get, you know, (laughs) they understand this better than we do. (laughs) I will say there was a little bit of, you know, anxiety about where we were going camping. I had to research to make sure it wasn't a hot zone right now or like, you know, seeing a lot of increase in disease. My husband, my poor husband, um, you know, being married to me, this is just part of the, um, the joys of, oh, yeah. you know, planning a vacation in sure. a pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Well, that'd be nice. To get I away. That, yeah. I think that's a, but I have a friend whose husband works in kind of the public health arena and it's really impacted which church they could go to because he's really averse to intinction communion. <laughs> and so even though theologically that's really where they land, they don't go to that kind of church. <laughs> and this was pre COVID. This was like years right, ago. Sure. It's like part of their marriage counseling. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned, you know, screen time and exercise and sunshine. Um, but you also talked about this whole scientific process being, um, having some mistakes in it along the way that you're going to have, you know, give and take. And we've seen that really around the topic of masks, because in the beginning of this thing, it was like, 
maybe it's airborne, maybe masks help. It has to be this kind of mask. It, you know, now masks don't work. Now they do, and you need to be wearing them. So, how is first of all, how is your ha- family handling masking? And second of all, what words of advice do you have for us now? Definitely, and those are all solid, um, you know, assessments of the situation as it has, you know, moved over time. I think that initially we were advising the typical person ag- against masks just because we needed to prioritize that personal protective equipment for our, our healthcare workers, and we knew there was a shortage. Um, so I think that may have been misinterpreted um, as the message went out that, you know, we didn't need to take precautions. We do, but we definitely need to prioritize saving those for the ones that need it. Um, however, we, you know, as time has gone on, we've learned more about masks and how they can help. And I think, no, they are not an invincibility cloak or anything like that that's going to save us from all threats, but it's better than nothing. And so I think that it's important um, to encourage that mask wear whenever we can. For my family, we wear masks anytime we are going into public outside of the house. I mean, like if we're going around the neighborhood and walking the dog, of course, we're not wearing a mask, but um, I'm the only one that goes to the grocery store and I'm wearing a mask every time. Um, There was a time that we had to go into a hardware store because we were out of furnace filters or something and the boys were wearing their masks too and um my boys are very um not excited about wearing the masks but we've made it work um and so um they've they've learned that they just have to do it in order to to get the things they want done outside of the house dr schmisky is there one particular mask that you would recommend over another I, i mean i know that we've uh, in my family have, you know, purchased just a, the typical blue surgical mask, but then also we've been able to find some of the N95 mask as well. Is there a certain kind of mask that you would recommend over another? So the N95 masks are the best ones for preventing um, those airborne particles from reaching you. Uh, We were worried about the supply of those in the early days. It sounds like we probably have more now. One of the big important things with an N95 mask is making sure that it fits correctly against your face, because if there are any gaps, then you sort of lose the benefit Mm -hmm. of having it. Um, But there are certain um, career fields where that would be more important, like those that are having frequent and prolonged contact with the public, um, like grocery store workers potentially, or, um, you know, healthcare workers, they probably need to be wearing those masks for sure. Yeah. In addition to mask wearing, uh, especially initially, there were a lot of suggestions on how to keep you and your family safe, uh, frequently washing your hands. I can't tell you how many times I sing happy birthday to myself in the mirror, Um, you know, social distancing, obviously, uh, avoid indoor gatherings of, you know, there was the number seemed to fluctuate, but Avoid those indoor gatherings, avoid large gatherings altogether, uh, stay at home unless, you know, you're getting out for exercise or uh, essential belongings such as food, grocery shopping, like you were talking about. Are there, have those changed over time? Is there, there's something that's more dangerous than the other? What could you advise to our listeners? I mean, what is the CDC? What is our health professional saying? What are these are the essentials to, to, to help just flatten this curve and to make certain you're as safe as possible? So initially we were nervous that 
there was going to be fomite transmission, meaning inanimate surfaces like doorknobs and elevator buttons and, and those sorts of things that, you know, a sick individual touches that, you touch it and then touch your face and you give yourself the virus. It doesn't seem that that is a primary route of infection like we had worried about at first. And that's a good thing. We should be grateful for this. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, there is still some concern that we, we know that it's respiratory droplets, but there is some possibilities of airborne transmission too. There have been some limited studies that have shown that. And so I think the jury is still out on that particular route of infection. Um, but I think that it's important to just keep in mind I I keep three things in mind, time, distance, and shielding. Um, And so you want to try to reduce the amount of time that you're around somebody um, that you don't live with um, in close proximity. Uh, You want to increase your distance from that person. And that's the recommendation for six feet, for example. Um, It's about twice the length of a person's cough and how far those droplets are going to land. And so that's the recommendation for that. And then shielding, I just mean like, putting something between you and a hazard. So that could be like a mask. Um, It could be plexiglass, like you see some of the cashiers at the grocery store using. Um, That's a great strategy um, just to keep those respiratory droplets from spreading too far. So I use that when I'm considering my risk Mm -hmm. in a task. Yeah, excellent advice, excellent advice. That's Yeah, it really is. So you mentioned earlier homeschooling your children. Is that something that Georgia is mandating right now or is that a personal choice? No, um, that is a personal choice. And I will say that I have never homeschooled my children and I am not necessarily looking forward to it. Um, I am great at teaching adults. I am less great at teaching uh, middle schoolers and elementary kids. So um, I think I probably misspoke when I said homeschool, we're going to be doing the virtual learning option through our school district. But I know that that requires a lot of parental support. Um, And so I know that there are parents that um, I I just want to make sure I say that there are no bad parents in this situation. I know that parents are having to make the best of an impossible situation for them. Uh, And so, uh, you know, for us, it made sense for me to either take this year off entirely or work in a remote capacity to be able to support my kids through that learning and keep them safe. You know, Dr. Schmicke, I mean, you bring up such an excellent point because, you know, in this debate of restarting school uh, starting in August, um, you know, I think nobody is attempting to uh, just say there is the perfect answer to restarting schools. Uh, and there's so many nuances that are at play in addressing this particular issue. The CDC has come out with guidelines. My fear is that there's going to be a, a rush to open schools and then we're going to see the spread of COVID-19 even further. One of the big proponents for people who advocate for reopening schools really without any limitations is that children have been averse to contracting this disease more so than older adults. We are now discovering that that may not be the case. Is there any, can you speak to that potential misnomer that children can't contract COVID-19? And if they do, what kind of long-term effects would a disease like COVID-19 have on children? 
Oh my goodness. There's so much to that question. Um, so bear with me for a minute. Um, so I think one of the central things is the idea that children can't get the disease. And unfortunately, I don't think that's true. I think we have benefited from the fact that almost every school in the country shut down right away. Um, and so there just hasn't been opportunity for the disease to reach kids. We haven't had mass gatherings of kids. Um, there was a study that came out, um, just recently out of Israel. Um, they just, or they reopened schools. Um, I believe it was in May, uh, fully reopened, no social distancing, no mask requirement. And within 10 days, they had an outbreak in their school. And this was a middle school and high school joint sort of school together in the same building. Um, and so they saw as many as I think it was 16% of the staff were infected. Um, and, um, you know, there was a, a good uh, mix of students that were infected, but especially in the grades of seventh through ninth. Um, and so what I'm, I'm saying is that we're starting to see examples in a study like that, but we've also had summer camps here in the United States um, that reopened and did see transmission among the campers. So it can happen. Uh, it just hasn't had the chance like we've had for adults where mass gatherings are taking place in the workplace or, or elsewhere. Now, as far as the long-term impacts, that's a great question because honestly, we're very new in this pandemic still, and we don't know all of the things that um, this thing is doing. We do know that the recovery time is longer than you see for influenza. When we follow up with patients 14 to 21 days out, another study shows that they still have at least one symptom and they report having a decreased quality of life compared to when they were um, before COVID. And so this is more serious than the flu. Um, in terms of recovery. And part of the reason for that is because we all think of COVID as a respiratory illness, and that's certainly how it gets into the body. But once it's there, it actually is a vascular disease um, because of uh, where it goes in the body. And so it can trigger blood clotting, um, and that can trigger things like strokes and heart attacks and other things that, you know, if you have that, um, obviously that can have a long-term impact um, and, 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 you know, the recovery time for that is going to be significant. So I, I think we still don't know, and we especially don't have good enough data in kids to know what the long-term impacts are going to be. So what you're saying is there's, there is, uh, there's studies going on right now released by Israel, as you said a moment ago, but there is potential for an outbreak, you know, God forbid, but there is potential for an outbreak among children because we have not experienced the, uh, I guess the the enormity of what it means to restart education in this country, because I don't think people realize how many students are going to be crammed into these school systems at one time. Uh, and not only the children, but you got teachers, you got, you know, you know, adults there. And, you know, my, I was talking to my brother. People those children live with. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And a lot of those people are in our vulnerable category. I mean, think about the average age of a school bus driver. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them are, this is their second career, um, something to keep them busy. And, um, you know, they would be high risk potentially um, due to age or underlying conditions. Um, but there's lots of people affiliated with the school. And we also know that the school provides more than just an education. So there's, there's a hard balance that has to be struck here. Um, I'm just concerned that we have, especially in the South, especially in Georgia, we have such high rates of transmission among our communities that um, 
and we're starting to see the strain in our hospital capacity and things like that, that we're really already at a point where we can't handle any more transmission than we're already seeing um, because it might tip us over into that threshold of not having the ability to care for the ill. And so I can't imagine reopening a school right now um, and introducing that opportunity for the virus to spread more widely. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Schmicky, that's it's it's such an important point that you're making, but there's also a larger issue at stake. We've been suffering from this pandemic now, just here in the United States, for four to five months now, uh, since you know late February. Uh, you know, some speculation that the virus actually came in before that, but regardless, since the beginning of the year, the response early on let's just say, was not extraordinary. And we suffered the consequences of that. As the disease continued to spread, as the numbers continued to increase, infections, death, it became very paramount that this was a serious situation that no matter what you said, no matter what side of the political aisle you were on, no matter your profession, no matter how large your checkbook, what religion you were, this disease just didn't really care. It just mm-hmm. continued to spread. So uh, this is a long way to get to this question. Because we botched the first reaction to the disease, we weren't able to contain it as a nation. My concern is that we've got a second shot here. And going into the fall, if we do not take the proper precautions and institute uh, the proper uh, response to this disease, that we are going to look at even increased numbers, both in contractions of COVID as well as the death rate, increasing dramatically going into the flu season. We've got one shot here. What should we be doing that we're not doing to shut this thing down? Oh, goodness. Um, So, sorry, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but um, (laughs) if I had a magic wand, I, um, it would not be popular, but we need to close down. We need to probably do a shelter in place at a national level for probably four months or not four months, four weeks, four to six weeks um, to get transmission down to a level that we can properly track and monitor it. And we can have the hospital capacity to deal with the infections that do come. And then when we do reopen, we need to do it strategically. Um, In the South, there was a big effort to just sort of return to life as usual. Mm -hmm. And that um, has had bad consequences for us. I mean, we're seeing our cases and deaths, cases are surging, hospitals are surging, our hospitalizations, and now deaths are starting to increase. Um, So I think you're right. We, we do need to take advantage of this opportunity while we still can before the influenza season starts up, um, before people are more likely to be indoors with each other. Because remember that a person can have more than one infection at a time. So a person could have COVID-19 and influenza at the same time. They look very similar, and that's going to make things very complicated for healthcare workers to distinguish who has what. Um, So this needs to be the very best year we've ever had for the influenza vaccine. We need really good compliance with that flu shot. Um, As much as we can get people to do that, that will help a lot. But the other thing to remember is that all sorts of respiratory infections are going to make you cough, whether it's the common cold, uh, influenza, 
RSV or whatever it might be, when you're coughing, you're expelling all of your respiratory droplets, regardless of what they might be carrying. And it could be COVID among other things. So that's, um, you're right. The idea of entering into the fall, entering into the winter, um, you know, it, it is alarming and concerning. I do think we have, we still have a chance to get this thing under control, but we need to make those decisions and get going on them now. What I hear you saying is that this isn't like one of those Marvel movies where the bad guys <laughs> wait until one bad guy's finished fighting and then another bad guy jumps in. They're all going to team us out once. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, viruses don't care. They don't take turns. Um, so uh, exactly. And a virus honestly doesn't care whether we're tired of being around it. I know that Mitch mentioned that, you know, we've been in this pandemic for four to six months. We're tired of it. We're all tired of it, but the virus doesn't care. In fact, it wants us to get tired of it. It wants us to go back to life as usual so that we congregate in groups and it has another opportunity to infect the next person. So um I wish that it cared what we thought, but mm -hmm. it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Schmidt, just to, for us to get our minds around it. Okay. Say we continue down this track of reopening, making, you know, small attempts at trying to protect ourselves. Uh, you know, wink, wink, you know, we're wearing masks, wink, wink, we're social distancing, but we're really not. What kind of numbers are we really looking at? I mean, we're talking double, triple the infections, death rates, I mean, because I think that while these numbers have been significant over the last two months as they have escalated, especially in the South, as you mentioned, I still don't think we understand what something like this could do and do quickly, the impact it could have on our society at large. I mean, a lot of people argue that we need to reopen because of the economy. Well, if we're tripling these numbers in you know, a month or two, the economy is gone because nobody can do anything for a lengthy amount of a time. And businesses will begin to shut down. Uh, organizations will begin to close. And the economy will suffer even a greater setback if we do not put these measures into play. So, I mean, are, if we don't, if we just kind of continue down this road of just kind of curtsying to this disease, I mean, we're, we have potential for a, I mean, we're, we're in crisis now, but just a calamity uh, that this country has never, ever seen before. Right. Um, so I was doing some numbers or looking at some numbers today, looking at the case rate of our country compared to some others. And even like a country like India or China, which has a lot bigger population density than we do, and you would think more opportunity for the disease to spread, our rate of um, infection is 12 times as high as theirs when you adjust for population. And our death rate is like 80 times as high. So it's really big. So what I'm saying is, you know, we're all experiencing this pandemic together, right? So yes, our economy is important, but the economies of all these other countries are important too. And they have figured out a way to knock down their level of transmission and, and they're able to reopen um, in a cautious and strategic way, of course, but I think that they are closer to the other side of this pandemic than we are. And, and so I agree. I know that we need to look after our economy, but you're absolutely right. If we don't have people at the end of this thing, then who's going to spend the money and who's going to buy the next house and, and that sort of thing. Um, as far as where we could be headed, um, it's hard to say um, there are, 
far smarter people than me out there who do projections, um, and modeling. Um, I look at it, but it's, it's not my, uh, it's not my strength um, here, but what I will say is that, you know, if we use the 1918 pandemic of influenza as sort of a, a guide, um, it's a similar disease in the sense that it's respiratory. It COVID-19 isn't quite as transmissible as that disease was, and it doesn't seem to impact people in the prime of life the way that the 1918 influenza did. But what happened there was that there was an initial wave of infection and death uh, that you know looked big at the time, uh, but they were able to knock it down through a lot of the same measures that we're doing now, social distancing and closing schools and, and banning large gatherings. And then it went away for a little while, but then it came back and the second wave was enormous. And um, you know we're talking probably, I, I don't wanna quantify it, but it was a big number of deaths mm -hmm. and um, we don't want to see that happen in this country. Potentially um, that I think that would be devastating. Honestly, right. what I worry about is, you know, from an economic standpoint, you mentioned the schools um, earlier, you know, if we open the schools and we see outbreaks and heaven forbid, we see deaths among children. I don't know that a, ch a parent is going to have an easy time trusting that school with their kid again. Mm. Um, you know, even after the disease is gone or diminished within a community, I think that it's only going to inspire more caution, more fear. And I just don't think that that's good for kids. It's not good for parents. Um, and I worry about the the psychological impact on these kids too. You know, like mm -hmm. if their teacher doesn't show up because they tested positive for COVID-19 and they've heard about COVID-19 and its impacts, are they terrified that their teacher is in the hospital? Mm -hmm. Are they worried about their fellow classmates? Right. And I don't think that enough is being discussed to consider the mental health impacts that we're going to be seeing among teachers, staff, and, and kids in this situation. Yeah. Well, I'm terrified that uh, we're going to see this thing uh, escalate quickly going into the fall. And I just, I hope cooler heads prevail. I hope wisdom prevails. And, you know, if I had a say in this, I'm right there with you. I think we need to shut down four weeks. Uh, mm -hmm. It would be difficult. It would be tough. But long term, it's the most successful way to address this, the spreading of this pandemic. And, and so I'm, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't have a whole lot of hope that that's going to happen, but I certainly wish it was. So I've, I've, we're about running out of time, but I do have got a, a couple of questions. I know Autumn's going to be able to, to feed these questions to you quicker than I am. But she mentioned, uh, you know, all of the Facebook and Twitter experts out there, you know, who um, – you know, read somewhere on some post that, that this was a big hoax and, you know, blah, 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 blah. They found one anecdote that matched what they wanted to be true. And so <laughs> right. they're blasting it like it's been checked by peers. Right. And so, I mean, like when, you know, I was reading something the other day and they were you know, talking about that this is the, a pandemic that scientists are uh, escalating the numbers and that the, um, the um, infection rates are not as high as they truly are and the death rates aren't as truly as that in one instance somebody died in an automobile and then they were categorized as a covid death you know how do you, how do you respond to people like that how how do you get through to people like that and, and, and not in a nasty ugly way even though that's exactly what i want to do but to take them by the face and parent them and say look at my eyes this is serious. 
Yeah, it's, it's so hard. Um, and honestly, I, so I do have a social media following. I'm, um, you know, I, I talk a lot about the data. I produce a newsletter that's available just about daily. Um, and that has been a, a source of information for a lot of people. Um, but what I will say is like, I, you know, when you teach your kids to ride a bike and they are taught to wear a helmet, I don't know if this happens with your kids, but with mine, when they see somebody not wearing a helmet, they think it's their job now to police them and say, Oh, so-and-so is not wearing a helmet. And they'll say it right to their face. And it, it can be kind of embarrassing, but at the same time, you're kind of proud of them, right? Cause they've <laughs> right, recognized sure. the safety yeah. risk of what they've done. And so I'm still having that with my kids now with masks. Um, so they are admonishing strangers on the street for not wearing their masks, which is great. Um, and, uh, problematic because there's such, uh, <laughs> you know, polarization over mask wear. Right. Um, but what I will say is, uh, let's see, we were talking about, I got off topic. Yeah. Um, just trying to, to respond, you know, in a, a constructive way to these people who oh, are right. not taking this seriously or calling it a pandemic and, and, you know, just coming up with these conspiracy theories of, of why this isn't as serious as it really is. Definitely. Okay. So, um, so first of all, public health has been the subject of conspiracy theory from the very beginning. When we started doing vaccinations, people thought we were giving people smallpox when we were immunizing them for cowpox. This was well before me. I wasn't there, obviously. Um, but you know, still there. (laughs) (laughs) And so in, in many ways, public health is this thankless job, right? That we've been working on the community's behalf and and there's not a lot of love for it until and especially not when something goes wrong like it is right now um but what i will say is that you know we have metrics that you know with the example you gave of like an automobile accident while a person happened to be positive for covid no that's not typically um coded as a covid death um that is there's guidance from the cdc that directs how those deaths are supposed to be recorded Um, but what we can do is look at the total deaths that have happened this year for example in 2020 and compare that to the trends over the last five years or so and we see that there are a whole lot more deaths this year than there were last year we haven't had a big hurricane earthquake or some other natural disaster to account for those deaths um so the only thing that really has changed is the arrival of COVID 19. and so um you know we have it's the sort of thing that, okay, you don't like this piece of data. I can show you this one. Um, and so for me as a data scientist, that's where I tend to go most is I'll show you the data. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't always get through, but I'm also not everybody's mother going back to my, mm-hmm. what I tell my kids about helmets and masks. I'm not their mom. I can't make them do it. Um, and so I also am not everybody's parent when it comes to, COVID-19, I can't tell them what to do. I can't force them to wear a mask. I just try to show the data as much as I can so that they can make their own conclusions um, about what the data are actually showing them. What is your newsletter? Um, Or social media presence, whatever that is. So I have a couple. Um, so I'm on Twitter as Amber Schmitke PhD. I'm also, the newsletter is Amber Schmitke PhD.substack.com. And that is, um, it's an email list that you can subscribe to and it goes directly to your inbox. Um, but the other thing is I've got a podcast that just launched last week called public health for the people. Um, and that's, um, kind of, you know, taking advantage of this opportunity where all eyes are on the data right now. And, and it's an opportunity to be, bring people into science and improve their comfort and literacy of scientific information so that, you know, we don't waste this opportunity when everybody is suddenly concerned with it um, to not educate them so that they will be ready for the next 
scientific challenge that we face. We'll have links to all of that in our show notes and on our social media as well. Excellent. Okay, cool. Dr. Amber Schmidt. Oh, you can no, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I can email it to you too, so that you have. Oh, that'd be great. Okay. Cause my, my last name's hard to spell. I know. <laughs> Sorry, Mitch. <laughs> no, ahead. you're fine. Dr. Amber Schmidtke, thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly this week. Uh, lots of great information. Thank you so much for your wisdom. And also thank you for your service to uh, just public health in general. I know sometimes it can feel like a, thankful, a thankless job, but uh, we've got plenty of listeners and readers at Good Faith Media that owe you a standing ovation, you and your colleagues. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Each and every week, we have one final question, and Autumn always has the pleasure of asking it. So, Autumn, I'm going to let you take it away. Perfect. So, a Good Faith Media, our motto is there's more to tell. Um, so, in light of everything we've discussed um, and with schools kind of glooming on the, on the horizon, what is your more to tell? Oh, goodness. Um, just understand that, you know, this is an opportunity, or it's a challenge, right? This is historic, what we're going through right now. And if, if you're having a hard time with it, you're not alone in that. Um, but what we've seen through all sorts of experiences like this in the United States, whether it was 9-11 or other things, is that moments of incredible challenge also inspire incredible moments of courage and bravery and compassion. And I think that the more that we can um, remember where we are in time and our role in this time um, will inspire us to do the right thing we can for our neighbors, for our communities, um, and get us to the other side of this pandemic. So I guess that's my I like that. Thing. That's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much. Again, Dr. Schmicky, thank you so much for being with us on Good Faith Weekly. We wish you the very best of luck out in the woods this week, wherever you may be going. Hope you get some time away with your family and uh, get some rest and relaxation. You deserve it. Thank you, guys. I appreciate being with you. Well, that wraps up another episode of Good Faith Weekly. And as always, Autumn and I want to wish everybody good faith and hope that you are staying healthy and safe in this world. 